How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. You're listening to Episode 9 of A Living Hope in Hopeless Times, an expository look at First Peter. I sure hope you had a chance to listen to the special edition episode we released last week with Daniel and Jamie Hurd. If you haven't, go back and listen to their story. They are a remarkable couple who have trusted the Lord as they lived out every parent's greatest fear. And they're still standing, still trucking on in a way that can only be explained by the supernatural power of God's Spirit. But today, let's continue on in our study of 1 Peter, looking at chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. There's a lot of talk in our world about our identity, about who we are. Are Are you a grandparent? Are you an employer? Are you an employee? Are you a stay-at-home parent? Uh, You don't say stay-at-home mom anymore. That's really politically incorrect. Are you a stay-at-home parent? Are you a mompreneurial? Are you a a businessman or woman? Uh, How do you define yourself? How many of you took the MMPI at some point in your life? A few of us. How many took the FIRO B? You ever heard the FIRO B instrument? How many took Strong's Inventory back when you were in college? How many took a DISC, the DISC test? A lot of you. How many took strength? Did I say strength finders? How many done strength finders? Okay. Um, what about Enneagrams? Any of your Enneagrams? What about your Myers-Briggs? Okay, a lot of you take Myers-Briggs. Now, I've taken so many assessment tools. As I said before, I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> they all tell me some little nuance. Sometimes I agree with it. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I really don't like it at all because it's too accurate and all points in between. And it occurs to me in this search for our identity, what do we... What are we trying to land? Are we trying to find our strengths, find our strengths? Are we trying to find our dominant motivational personality? I'm a dominant, I'm inspirational, I'm a compliant, I'm steadfast. Are we trying to ENJT? I mean, what are we trying to discover in this? Part of it is certainly fine, but I wonder, is part of it a justification for who we are? This is who I am. I'm a D, I'm an I, I'm an S, I'm a C. I'm an E-N-J-T-Q-R-L-P. I'm a learner. I'm a leader. I'm a creative. And that can be helpful. I'm not, I'm not demeaning the whole process, but is it an excuse for our behavior? Is it a rationale for this is the way I am? Or is it even like I want to be like somebody else and they're this, so let me be like that? Or am I, just, am I crazy thinking these thoughts? That's very possible. What, what is your identity? How, how, do, how do you describe yourself? I know we can say we're Christians, but let's get beyond the label. Who are you? What's your identity? Why are you here? Why am I here? This passage will answer that and a lot more in First Peter. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Let me read the whole section, and then we'll take it apart a little bit at a time. First Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone... 
which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. For you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, this passage obviously is a new thought in the epistle that uh, Peter is writing to these dispro, these scattered abroad believers, these believers who live in a place that's not their home. Remember, we've talked about that theme quite a bit. Also, the, the sub-theme for me is, is, you know, where do we get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? And that subtext is, is true for these people when Peter writes this letter. They don't live where they want to live. It's not their home. They're scattered. They're living in fear. Uh, this is pre-Nero, so we're not burning Christians yet. Um, but uh, in any event, Jesus now here is referred to a living stone, and you're going to see the parallel living stones. So the metaphor is probably taken from Psalm 118, verse 22, which is referenced if you have a Bible with cross-references in it. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So that's one of the big pieces of this puzzle. There are a lot in here. Let's take a look at it. First of all, these living stones, verse 4 again. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. First of all, that phrase, coming to him, is not a salvation come to him. It's to draw near to him. He's talking to believers. He's writing to those who've already trusted Christ. This goes back to an Old Testament idiom in chapter 9, verse 5 of Leviticus, where the Lord commanded his people to come near and stand before him. You're drawing up to worship. In Hebrews, many times you have a similar reference in chapter 4, 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Whenever I read those words, I always, in my strange brain, goes back to the Wizard of Oz. When they finally go see the wizard and this ominous thing and the smoke and the fire and the noise and, you know, pay no attention to the guy behind the curtain. But, you know, dare to draw near to the throne, it's a terrifying thing. The author of Hebrews says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. And then lastly, Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance of faith, which is an interesting nuance because we're approaching God based on faith. There's a confidence there. I can walk in, not boldly or with lack of respect, but I can come in confidently because a way has been made for me to come near to God. 
Well, Christ is described as a living stone here, lithos. Um, lithos is distinguished from other New Testament words for rocks and pebbles and stones. And not always, but generally speaking, a lithos was a dressed rock. It was used for building. Because when you go to Israel, you'll see in the Jerusalem quarter, when they're laying uh, groundwork, it's, it's even called the Jerusalem stone. They have a piece of stone that they're putting in the ground, like thinking, think of workmen uh, laying a brick walkway. But these are large uh, stones, and they're camphored on the edge, and these men with chisels and a hammer are distressing them to make them look somewhat old. And it's remarkable how quickly they can dress one of those stones to make it look like something that was older. And when you uh, tour certain parts of the country, you know, the so-called Herodian temple complex, we go underground and you see a stone that is um, probably longer than the stage. I used to know the, the metrics of it, but I forget it now. They, they estimate it weighs something like 200 tons. It's a massive rock. You can't put a piece of paper between it. And on the flat surface of the rock where it comes together, it's beveled back. It's like a camphor. And the piece that sits on top of it is camphored in. It's all done by hand. You look at it today, you couldn't do it with lasers. The, the detail that they could do. So this imagery is very common to these folks. It'd be like saying you drive down the road. We all know what a road is. We all know what driving is. When they say a living stone, it was a stone that was prepared for a building. For whatever reason, the metaphor, it's set aside. It's not used. Now, we can miss the most obvious part of this illustration. Rocks are dead. Stones are inanimate. Stones have no life. It's a mineral. It's, a, it's, a, it's limestone. It's granite. It's quartz. It's combinations of all the above. It's lava. It's stone. Uh, it's not a living thing. But Peter is telling us he is a living, a living, our, our definite article, a living stone. His Old Testament theology comes to bear. And I was in a conversation recently with someone we were talking about the Apostle Paul's breadth of theology and how Peter was just a fisherman. Yet by the time he writes these two letters, his theology is extraordinary. But it's also easier to understand the sum of Paul's theology, which is one of the reasons it's such a fun uh, letter to study. The Old Testament recalls the description of a living stone, which stands in contrast to a temple complex. What's a temple complex? It's a bunch of rocks piled up where worshipers can come and offer sacrifice or gather to worship. Is the temple complex alive? Just a bunch of stones that have been camphored and chiseled and cut and put in order so people can assemble. And think about in antiquity, and you've been in the wilderness areas. You've driven across the southern part of Utah, for example. There's nothing out there. Parts of West Texas, nothing, nothing out there but topsoil, as far as I can see. In the wilderness, nothing there. You put some stones together, you build a shade, you build a portico, People will come to it as an attraction of a sort. And so the temple complex was put on high places. They were put where traffic patterns were, we would call them, along the, the way of the, the sea, the Via Maras, or the International Highway, as it's called. So these temple complexes were, were peppered throughout all antiquity through pagan theology. And, of course, finally in the temple complex that, that God allows the Hebrews to build. Well, it stands in contrast to all those temples as lifeless as dead stones stacked on one another. But this Jesus is the living cornerstone. Notice he's rejected by men. It's an interesting term. Um, you know, we've talked before about the little letter A in front of something negates it. Like a millennial means there is no millennium. This is a fun word in Greek because the word rejected means approved or qualified 
with the letter A in front of it. Not approved, not qualified. So the root is a very attractive word, we might say. That's a good thing. And oh, wait a minute. It's not approved. It's not qualified. It's disqualified. It's disapproved. But from God's perspective, it's a choice and precious stone. It's choice and precious in the sight of God. It won't surprise most of you who are Bible students, but it's eclectos is the word choice here, where we get the word election all throughout the New Testament, the idea that God chose. So not only is it a chosen stone, it's the chosen son, and he's precious, highly regarded, of considerable worth. God the Father views his son as a chosen son and a highly regarded, a priceless son, and he then is the living stone. That living stone imagery then, Peter moves to believers, which is quite a twist. Peter says that, verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a royal priesthood. When God told the Israelite, when he told David, when he told Saul, he was going to build a temple complex for them to worship. Uh, the Hebrews talk about a name and a place. If you go to Yad Vashem, which is their Holocaust museum, and a name and a place. Uh, the, the word play on that, and even the modern Hebrew may not understand this, the modern Jew, but the word play on that goes back to the Old Testament where God establishes his name is the place you're going to worship him. You can't worship him anywhere else. He has to establish his name there. So Mount Moriah becomes the place where God establishes his name. The same place where uh, Abraham put a, a knife to Isaac's neck, Mount Moriah, is the place where the temple complex resides today. Now, with great hubris and irony, the al Osk Mosque and the Dome of the Rock are in the proximity of the place where Abram put a, ne- a knife to Isaac's neck. All happened on this hillside. And you who've been there have seen this up close and personal. Herod's Plateau, obviously, is much, much bigger than the original temple complex. But, but think of a rocky mountain, and if we were to take a, a box and cut the side of the box to match the terrain and set it on this terrain so we have a flat plateau. Stone upon stone upon stone. And if you go underneath some of the places you can see uh, what Herod did, some of it dates back to Herod's time period. We don't see much of the original temple complex because it's so far under rubble, what's called a tell. All that to say, where God put his name was the place you could offer sacrifice. The stones had to be dealt with away from the area. They had to be chiseled and, and uh, dressed and then brought into the temple complex because you couldn't use metal instruments inside the area where the temple was going to be built. All this imagery is lost on us, but it's very aware. The, the, the ancients, uh, P- Peter's audience was very aware. So look again at verse 5. Your living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. The priests were the only ones who could do the function of the temple complex. They had to be related to Aaron. They had to be related to the Levitical order, the Aaronic, A-A-R-O, Aaron, Aaronic priesthood. You were born into that tribe, and you were trained. Now, we, we have a hard time envisioning what these priests did what they as ministers Think of them primarily as a slaughterhouse and cleaning up messes. Because most of the sacrificial system, there was morning and evening sacrifices during festivals. There were thousands of animals that were slaughtered. Those animals had to be uh, bred. They had to be cordoned. They had to be uh, inspected. 
You couldn't just offer any animal. It had to pass muster, so to speak. It had to pass the law. Um, some of you are hunters. Some of you have field-dressed a deer. Uh, think about wearing a white ephod with ancient implements and not having running water, having basins of water. And you have to field-dress that animal, clean all the refuse, all the blood, take all the entrails out, and keep a white ephod. That's why uh, some of the ancient Hebrews were, I mean, these were the best butchers on the planet. They had done it so well, so long, they knew exactly how to do it to minimize, if you will, the containment of thousands of animals being sacrificed. In the mobile tabernacle complex, it was easy. In fact, one one of the... Most of the Hebrew, uh, most Old Testament scholars believe one of the reasons God moved them in the wilderness with the tabernacle complex was because they overabused the land with livestock and sacrifices and 1.2 million people. So you moved. You moved. You moved because you didn't have a city with a water supply and houses and so forth and so on. All that to say, the, the temple was built and the priests were the only ones who could offer these sacrifices the way God designed. Now, Peter's saying, you are living stones being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus was a choice and precious stone, you are a choice and precious person. Now, we envision these living stones in Perhaps a way that's helpful to me. Think of the New Testament stone as a spiritual temple. Think of it as a spiritual house. And you and I are stones in that spiritual house. We don't, I mean, the local church is certainly a house of worship in the sense that believers are assembling, but the physical building does not matter. Oh, we may have our preferences. We, if you're like me and you grew up in a, a Catholic church or if you're Episcopal church or Methodist, you might like the appointments of those buildings. I mean, there's something about going into a place and I can still walk into a church. Catholic churches have a very distinct odor. It's from the beeswax candles that they use the, and, and the eternal flames and these other, uh, not eternal flames, the, uh, oh dear, forgive me for forgetting all that, but uh, I've repressed a lot of that. But the, the can, there's a candle that always burns. It's the presence candle. It has to always burn. It can't go out. It goes out all the time, but don't tell anybody. Uh, and they had to replace these candles on schedule and people like candles. My mother always liked lighting these candles and putting little cards in them. And you walk in, there's this odor and I go back to being a boy. Um, maybe that's, maybe the Baptist church has a Baptist spray. I don't know. Uh, do churches have an odor, but there's something about when you're raised in that system, it's, that's where you understand this gathering and assembly. We have to erase all that. That's just a Western tradition that we grew up with. It may be right. It may be wrong. That's not my point. My point is you are spiritual stones. You are the living stone, the living body of Christ. Not whether you go to XYZ church, Methylbacterian, Presbyterian, whatever you do. It's, it's that you are a living stone as part of that. We're not stacked into a location. We're living stones. We are a New Testament temple. That might be a way of thinking of it. Further, we're to offer up sacrifices. Now, this is a head scratcher, which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's no more burnt offering. There's no more grain offering. There's no more sin offering. There's no more guilt offering. There's no more animal sacrifices. There's no more uh, sacrifices for our sin, for purification. There's no more sacrifice when a woman gives birth to a boy, which is different. When she gives birth to a girl, which was different. There's no more sacrifice when uh, certain rituals in the Jewish Passover and so forth and so on. All that's gone. 
But we're told here to give, offer up, which is interesting, spiritual sacrifices. Now, what are those? Well, I'll give you a few ideas. Romans 12, 1, obviously, is the first place many of us run to. It is our spiritual service of worship. So Paul enjoins us that, that you and I as Christians, we don't just enjoy our salvation smugly, but we have a spiritual service of worship. And he goes on to unpack that we were given a gift of faith and we're to exercise the gift of faith in different ways through the gifting of the Spirit. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 to 16 notes a number of things. Sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing with such sacrifices, God is pleased. When we verbally say things about God, what happens? If somebody gives you good news and you go, man, bless God, thank God for that. That can sound cliche. That can sound trite and Christianese, right? But if it's genuine, if something happens, bless God. A friend of mine just had a, a lesion took off his arm. Might have been a bad cancer, turned out to be nothing. Bless God, man. That's exciting. Praise God. Thanks. When you say those words, two things are happening. You're reminding yourself, I need to thank God for this, and people who hear it go, wow. Now, that guy's a religious kook or what? I mean, you know, it just depends on your audience and worldview. But I think that's a very specific way that the sacrifice of praise to God and the fruit of our lips that gives thanks to God. Do we thank him? Do we stop and genuinely thank him for what we have, what we're experiencing? It reminds us and it reminds others. And it says, with such, God is pleased. I'm not killing an animal or putting money in a plate and hoping God's going to accept my offering I'm living as a spiritual service of worship. I'm speaking of God in a positive way. I'm telling others about his blessings. Uh, Note, they're only acceptable to God when they're through Jesus Christ, Peter tells us. If we do it in the flesh, if we do it out of cliche, it's worthless. But if we do it through Christ, it means something. A, A lesson that struck me going through this was, we do well to see Christ in our Christian lives from God's vantage, not ours. In this passage, we're told that it's God who chose the living stone. It was precious, look, in his sight. So when, when God looks at your life and mine, and don't hear me wrong, is he pleased in the sense that we're living this spiritual service of worship? It does matter. And I think part of this horizontal Christianity rampage I'm on is it's all about me, my eye. And what's, gonna, what's it going to do for me and my family and my health and my children and my grandchildren and my marriage and my job and my insecurities and my problems and my anxiety and my stress and my depression and my, and boy, it's, it, it's just a, a vortex that pulls us along. We slip stream along with a horizontal focus. Maybe you're a lot more mature than me. That's an easy slipstream to get pulled into, me, my, I. And it's reflected in what we pray for, is it not? Or it's reflected in what we don't pray for. So it's a good reminder, uh, as I was studying this, it's like, you know, hello, McFly, easily listen to this. What does God think of your life? What does Christ think of the way you're living? It's a good reminder. Verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. 
Peter refers to a number of different passages. In fact, it's pretty impressive the number of verses he's quoting, we would say. This is from Isaiah 28, 16, as well as a number of other Old Testament citations. The point of saying it's contained in Scripture, why would he say that to a first century audience? The Jews' view of the Old Testament was very different than their view of what is becoming the new. We, we have a hard time. We look at a Bible, old's the big, old, difficult part. The new is the easy part that applies to us. That's how most Christians tend to look at the Bible. The Old Testament was what the, the Jewish believer knew. The New Testament is just coming on the scene. When we're, these books are written, they're just coming on the scene. And they'll take a long time before the church will acknowledge this corpus of material as the Bible, what's called the canonization of the Bible. But when Peter's writing this letter, I don't know that the audience understood what he wrote in the same weight as the Old Testament. And I can't be dogmatic about that, but it just makes common sense. Look at how often Paul has to defend his apostleship. Look at how often he's having to fight back with humility, but saying, I'm the least of all the apostles, but this did happen to me, and I had a conversion experience. And uh, he writes, you know, 13 letters to the churches, and some didn't believe Paul, but they sure believed Moses, and they sure revered the prophets, and they sure revered the law of God, but they didn't obey it. Yes, there were pious Jews who did, without a doubt. There were pious Jews who believed and obeyed the law, but when Jesus comes on the scene, most people rejected him. He came to his own, his own knew him not. Now, many Jews, many Jewish leaders followed Christ, but many were rejecting of him. So when Peter writes this, it's contained in Scripture. What's he saying? What I'm telling you is nothing new. What I'm telling you has the weight of the law. Now, in, in our nomenclature, we talk about the Bible being inerrant and having authority. Inerrant means there are no errors in the autographs. Not the books we have. Not, there's, there's not one Greek manuscript. There's thousands. The Old Testament Masoretic text is the most reliable document arguably on the planet. But the Septuagint is also another set of documents you've got to scratch your head through. So when we talk about textual criticism, I like to use the illustration one of my professors taught me many years ago. We have 120% of the evidence. The problem is 20% of it we're not sure of. So the task of a biblical critic, the task of a textual critic, you, many of your Bibles have a, a, a margin in the note that will say some manuscripts don't include this or some manuscripts say this. Let's just say uh, for conversation's sake, we have uh, lectionaries and fragments in the New Testament and there are thousands of them. The so-called Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, there are thousands of these fragments. It's like a, a jigsaw puzzle from purgatory parchments, the handwriting, the stylus, the copyist, the errors in transmission. Because if you remember, the, it was the old, I'm going to date myself again, it was a Xerox commercial, and all these monks were in a scriptorium, and they're copying stuff, and the guy brings out the copy. Remember that? You know, wow, save our, save our, our lives, you know. But uh, when, when, they would, when they would transcribe, in Hebrew especially, when they transcribe the scrolls, um, if they made a mistake, what they did was they would count it. In fact, the word scribe means counter. It also means a lawyer, but one who counts. And so the scribes, who would graphe, who would write it, then a, a superior would count the characters. Hebrew didn't have what we call vowels until later, a uh, pointing system. There were just characters. And characters changed based on a prefix and a suffix. 
We, we think of an I-N-G ending, bring and bringing. That word sounds pretty similar, but when I've told you before, go, went, gone. Where does went come from? Some grammar Nazi, that's all I know. Should be go, goed, gone in my view, but it's go, went, gone, because go doesn't sound right. Well, Hebrew, you drop letters, characters, when you put a prefix or a suffix, or sometimes if the word it comes close to has a similar sound, there are rules that come into play. It's a very difficult language. So when you're copying these characters, uh, then you count them on the parchment. If it was off a number, a mark was put on the document. It was rolled up and stored because you couldn't destroy it because it was God's word, but you couldn't use it because it had errors on it. The handling of the Old Testament was a remarkable uh, God-overseen thing, but we say the autographs, the original documents, we don't have them all, were transmitted down, and the integrity of God's word was on God preserving his word, not on how well we copied it. Now, by the New Testament time, it's a whole different ballgame because we've got so many manuscripts, it's insane. So when you read your New Testament, and they'll say some manuscripts say, um, P46 is one of the, it's just crazy names for them, P46 is one of the most reliable documents. So that becomes kind of the benchmark. When Peter says this simply, sorry for the digression, for this is contained in Scripture, what he's saying is, this is God's Word, and it has authority. I'm not telling you something new about this Jesus as the living stone and as you as the living stones. This was contained in Scripture. It's, it's like a massive trump card. It's reliable. It's true. It has authority. This choice stone, this precious cornerstone, points to the foundation stone. Now, some of us have heard cornerstone. I heard this years ago. was like in an arch. The cornerstone was the, the top keystone that held, held the arch together. Tom Schreiner writes, This is an allusion to Christ's resurrection. God made him the cornerstone of the building when he raised him from the dead. He was chosen and honored by God. Cornerstone is understood by some to refer to the top stone of a building or the keystone of an arch. This interpretation should be rejected, Triner writes. For the reference to stumbling in verse 8 indicates the stone is on the ground The reference to believing in him restates the idea of coming to him. Peter emphasized the one who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. Just as Christ is the chosen and honored one of God, he was so honored at his resurrection, the stones resurrected. So two believers will be vindicated on the last day. What is true of Christ is true of his people. They will not experience the embarrassment of judgment, but the glory of approval. They will be honored. And again, when you go to Israel, and if we can get through the so-called rabbinic tunnel, you'll see this stone. And we just point it out because it's a massive stone. It's enormous. It's huge. It can't be moved. It's so big. It's the biggest one they've uncovered to date. And you'll stumble over it. It's not going to move. You know, the old adage, if the rock hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the rock, the pitcher gets hurt. This stone's not going anywhere. And it's a living stone, and if you're a believer in Christ, you also are living stones. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who to believe. But for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. 
Peter says here, you either believe or you reject the stone. This is the third time the term precious is in our short passage. It's a, it's a, a, a word of value. It's great in God's eyes. For those who disbelieve, takes us back to Psalm 118 again. Isaiah 8, 14, prophesying that those who reject him will stumble on the stone. They're disobedient to the word, in other words. Now, it can be hard to read these passages. It can be hard for us that don't like the idea of predestination. Some of us don't like the idea of election. When you read that uh, they stumble because they were disobedient to the word and this doom they were appointed, we've got to figure out a way to explain that away. Um, The bottom line is stumbling means to trip over something. Taking offense means that you're rejecting it. And the New Testament record is crystal clear that most rejected him. Paul underscores the same in Romans 9.32. If you reject the very cornerstone, you have a consequence that is natural. Earl Richard writes a good summary. Finally, the author brings the passage to a conclusion by reiterating the theme of stumbling. He relates this reality first to the preaching of the good news and then to God's overall plan. So first, they've disobeyed the word or they were not obedient to the truth. They disobeyed by faith. I love the expression actually when that says obedient to the word. The word's giving and you by faith respond. That's obedience to the word. If you're disobedient to the word, you hear the word and you say, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. That's disobedience to the word. All right. Uh, he continues. Secondly, First Peter uses a key term. In your English Bible, in verse 6, it's the word lay. And in verse 8, it's the word appointed. That word is the same word in Greek. Our translators have a hard time sometimes because of context and smoothing the reading. So it's, lay, it's laid or it's appointed. Just say it this way. It's put in its place. It's put in its place. If you're building bricks, there's a brick that's appointed. Maybe you have a cornice stones or a, what they call coined brick around a windowsill. That it goes in its place. It's laid in its place. So both words, laying in verse 6 and appointed to the same word. It's, in other words, it's two pictures of the same thing. It's God's divine plan. God chose what stone goes where. Now, here's the hard part. Does God predestine people to hell and predestine people to heaven? Uh, There are those, maybe you were raised that way, that hold those positions. If you read Romans 9.22, by itself, Jacob I love, Esau hated. Does the clay say to the potter, who are you, O man, answered back to God if God does what he wants? So there's an intellectual argument for double predestination. But we have so many other passages around the doctrine of election and I've given you this illustration not long ago, the arch, whosoever will, whosoever will. The offer is open. He wishes none perish, no, not one. He doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. He's not a malevolent, capricious God. Election only has application for the believer. It has no application for the unbeliever. A hard doctrine for many, um, but I think we have to hold salvation in tension. We respond by faith. We don't merit salvation. That's the good message we're giving. But the scripture is not afraid to be true. If those do not believe, they are going to face a Christless eternity. Well, verses 9 and 10 goes to our point, the chosen race. And this is my question as I began. Where's your identity? Who are you? What are you about? Your grandparent? You, you, a, you a learner? You, whatever your strength finders? Are you, you a, your Myers-Briggs? Whatever you want to call yourself. How do you justify your personality? 
You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Chosen in verse 9 links us back to chosen in verse 4 and verse 6. We're not just chosen individually. Now Peter says you're a chosen race. Fascinating terminology. Which begins to dismantle Jew and Gentile and Sumerian and uh, all the different words we would use. Galileans, all the pejorative terms they would talk about other races around them. Even though it would be the Middle East, there's still differentials. But Paul's saying here, through the power of the Spirit, you're chosen a race. You have a birthright, not based on genetics. It's um, a lot of, some of you are old enough to remember the Upstairs, Downstairs, the book and then the original movie, which became the pattern for so many of these British things, Downton Abbey and so many of these that have followed, the Upstairs, Downstairs. If you, if you were a Downton fan, you probably, if you didn't pay attention to it, you'll understand when I say this, there were two color palettes. There was an Upstairs palette, Downstairs palette. The upstairs palette was gold and reds and vibrant colors and all the color of, of, of you know, those who were born into royalty, born into nobility. The downstairs was a, a gray-blue palette. They wore black clothes and white shirts, and the camera angles were down, and all the color palettes of the room were very modest and white and grays and black, almost a black-and-white setting. And what was clever when the, when the filming, when they had to mix the two audiences, when the servants were either up in the residence or one of the residents came down to the service quarter. And if you watch that stuff today, pay attention to what they do with the pallets. You see, you're born into nobility or you're born into service. A very British mindset. In antiquity, you were born a slave. You were born a Jew. You are born a Gentile. You are born a half-breed. There was probably, it was probably harder in the first century than it is today. But you're a chosen race now. Doesn't matter what your physical genetic DNA heritage was, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And this goes back to Exodus 19 and 23, where the royal status is granted to children. That you can't do this. In Christ, you can. You're not just a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. And the way Peter writes it, holy nation go together. You're a set-apart nationality now. You're superior to the Jew alone. He's taken the Jew and the Gentile, put them together, and made a holy race, a royal priesthood for God's own possession. That's a unique cultural concept. What race and nationality have been made to be God's possession? We think about a name meaning we have an inheritance. When we adopted our children, uh, we had to update our will. And it's striking. Uh, Hannah was born and we adopted Jesse, And uh, she was two, three weeks old. And we had to update the will. And we uh, hired a special attorney that was you know, familiar with adoptions. And we go through and follow the paper out. And it was fascinating reading. This is in Texas many years ago. And uh, 28 plus years ago. And reading these documents. And they all talked about whether adopted or biological. And I remember telling the uh, estate uh, attorney, I said, man, I'm, I appreciate that you, you know, put that language in our will. And he just laughed at me because Michael has been there since 1802, you know. 
He said, because people used to adopt children and abuse them as workers and then kick them out of the family, which were the orphan train stories. And so the idea was to protect children from being disavowed. My adopted children, you know, not that they'll be much when we're dead, but whatever's there, they're heirs to it. When Cindy's mom and dad passed away, we got a little bit of inheritance. When my uncle passed away, I got a little bit of inheritance. Well, you know, that's how it works, right? We give it to our nieces, nephews. If we don't have our own children, we pass it on to other organizations. We're God's inheritance. It's a real head scratcher. He's done this so that he can inherit us for his name. Now, watch what Peter does. Now, we're charged with a mission, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you. Ex angelio, ex angelio. I've talked a lot about the word euangelio. It's the proclamation of good news. Euangelio becomes evangel, evangelism, evangelistic in the way we use the word. Euangelo is one who pronounces something. Exangelio, he's saying, your job is to proclaim the excellencies. All this litany of your identity and the final, the final hook is, you need to talk about it. I've just told you, Peter says, you're, you're, what you were as a rejected person and what you are as a, as a royal priest, a chosen race, a holy nation, God's own possession for God's own glory. And what your job is, you are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, the one who called you to salvation. Last in verse 10, Peter recalls Hosea, you were not a people and now you are a people. You didn't have mercy, and now you have mercy. And again, Peter's theology of the Old Testament comes back strong. I like to say, you and I were illegitimate throwaway orphans that nobody wanted. And Christ called you, and you responded by faith. You were obedient to the word. And he said, not only are you part of my family, you're part of a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're my possession. And everything I have is yours, and you're mine. I, uh, this week, I don't know if you had a chance to or not, but I happened to uh, be parked and was able, when I was uh, on travel, to watch the Billy Graham funeral. Did anybody watch it? I cannot commend, challenge, charge, encourage, mandate, give you homework enough to have you go watch that funeral service. I've watched it twice. It will blow your mind. It's being dubbed as Billy Graham's Last Crusade. All of his children spoke, warts and all. It was a, a beautiful event. If you go to the, C-SPAN's running it all the time, but if you go to the Billy Graham Evangelist Association page, BGA page, you can watch the whole thing start to finish. You can watch the dignitaries arrive and the litany of people leaving. In fact, it's a who's who with all these cameras parked at the exits of this tent of all the people that are coming out. And you go, oh, so, in fact, Johnny was, Johnny and Ken were there. I was I was just, I was crying most of the time, laughing some of the time, but it was it was I can't describe it. It was not what I expected, but another way, it was exactly what to be expected. Um, it used to be said that D.L. Moody's footprint was larger than Billy Graham's, but with the advent of television and the long and the almost sixty years now, and there's no question he eclipsed it. You know, millions of people were exposed to the gospel, and who knows what the true number. Uh, conversions are and when you go to the Billy Graham Training Center or the museum you'll see these pictures I mean in in South Korea and China places no one ever gone before with completely full auditoriums being televised 
And it struck me, and listening to all these testimonies and all, all the stories of Billy Graham, he did one thing. He did one thing. He preached the gospel. You could listen to him. He contemporized it. He would use newspaper stories. He would talk about, I was talking to a man the other day, and he was depressed, or he was sad. I was talking to a woman, and she's sick. And he just tells a human story, and then he talks about that Christ loves you. And he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead. And any and all who trust and believe, and you know, he, he liked to use the word receive Christ in your heart. But there was a certain language he used that just cut across all kinds of barriers. Some of you know, some of you don't. He was vilified by far-right conservative Christian groups in the early years. Certain churches would have nothing to do with him. And the other extreme of super liberal churches had nothing to do with him. He would go into town and divide all kinds of Christian churches. They'd get mad about the way the program was done. All the man was doing was assembling a group of people and sharing the gospel. And millions came to Christ. And if you watch social media, I don't recommend you do this, but if you have feeds like I do, the vitriol, the hate, the wicked, evil responses that were going on during his funeral, while he's in, lying in state in, in, the, in the capital, while he's being transported from Asheville to Charlotte, the social media evil just came out like I've never seen it. The things they said about him, the vile stuff they posted about him, and I'm going, he, he never gave time for his critics. He stayed focused. And I thought, what am I doing in my life? And can I be so meddlesome to ask, what are you doing with yours? Are you proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you? You and I don't have a Billy Graham platform, but you got a sphere of influence around you. you got people you know that don't know. You got friends you know that don't know. And yeah, it's complicated. And yeah, it's risky. And now it's a little bit scary at times. But if not now, when? And I'm just, it just struck me. Graham was focused. It didn't matter if you were a president or an aide or a guy in a cab or driving a shuttle. He was going to talk about Jesus. And where does a person get such courage? Or is it is it courage? Or is it something else? I don't know. Will you, as a chosen believer, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, will you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you? Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.